Thank you, team, and good morning, everyone. As we come to our time in God's Word today, um, I want to um, kind of get one thing out of the way, and, and that is that I've had many people that have been asking me about uh, what I shared a week or two ago, that I was going to be participating in the uh, World War II reenactment at uh, Buckley Homestead. And so just to get that out of the way here early on so you're not thinking about that constantly as I speak, uh, I just wanted to uh, let you know that it did happen yesterday. And uh, as things worked out, I I thought I was going to have to be fighting on the German side, but I got to fight on the American side, which was really great. And so just a photo from uh, yesterday, just so you just kind of can see it there. There I am. So, yeah. Now, one really cool thing that happened, and, and, and by the way, you're like, oh, we want sermon illustrations from this. There are sermon illustrations to come. But they fit better in a few weeks, so hold on with that. But um, last night at our Saturday night service, I was sitting here in the front just like a moment ago where we were taking the uh, benevolent offering, and right before I walked up, I kind of like looked, just turned around to look a little bit, and um, well, I got to preface it with this. I showed up yesterday morning and was in a unit, a squad, whatever you'd call it, and uh, why don't you leave that up there? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, if you've never been to it, there's big, like there's these people. They're just like into it, and they come from all over the country. There's tons of equipment and all kinds. That's like a tank from one of the tanks that was there. And so, anyway. Um, there's one guy from our church that is, that is in the unit, but I don't know the rest of the guys um, at all. And so we went through the reenactment in the morning, and, and we did the battle scene, and, you know, you kind of sit around and chew the fat with everybody. And so um, then I had to leave and come to get ready for the Saturday night service. So anyway, last night, I am moments from walking up and, uh, and, and beginning to speak when I turn around during the little benevolent offering that we just got done taking and three rows behind me right there is the whole unit from, uh, from the reenactment in their uniforms. So I, I was like, you guys came. Like what? It's just so, it was so fun. So I had them stand and all this and, uh, so while you were mowing your yard and whatever you were doing yesterday, I was fighting for freedom and the American way. So it was a fun experience. More on that in a future message. And maybe even today if it comes up. So we are back in 1 Corinthians. And we are starting the last portion of, of, of the letter. If you were to divide it up, you could view chapters 12 through the end is kind of the last hurrah, the final portion, but it is a long portion and it is a challenging one. And it's going to deal with spiritual gifts, public worship, and loving one another. And you might wonder what do all those things have in common? Well, you'll just have to find out. We also are going to have the joy of developing a theology of the Holy Spirit. These, these uh, verses have much to do with uh, the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is a good thing, and I think it is a needed thing here in our 
congregation, I was praying. I was on a little prayer walk praying about this message, and I, I prayed to the Lord um, something to the effect of, Lord, I, I think that I need a better understanding of the Holy Spirit. Anybody here got them all figured out? I don't think so. And so I think that this is going to be a good thing for us. I've, I've, got a, I've ordered a book I'm looking forward to reading, and the title of the book is Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And I would bet that my knowledge of the congregation, most of us, not everybody, but most of us probably come from backgrounds where uh, I would say the Holy Spirit has been uh, somewhat marginalized. And so a good, robust study of the Holy Spirit and his role within the congregation and can only be good for us, and I think that it's going to be. We have a lot to learn, and the, these passages ahead, are they are famously encouraging, and they are famously divisive. And I would like to ask for prayer as we work through these, because we want much more of the former and not the latter. And may God build the church up through uh, this study. Now, my Bible begins chapter 12 with a little heading, and it says spiritual gifts. I would guess yours probably does as well. And uh, that is very appropriate because chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. And like the other subjects that Paul has addressed in this letter that the Corinthians had asked him about, you recall they wrote him a letter and said, what about this, what about this, what about this? And he in the letter is saying, well, here's about this, here's about this, here's about this. He's answering their questions. And we also have seen that there was very little that the Corinthians couldn't find a way to seriously mess up. And they, we saw that in, in many things. You remember in, uh, in chapter, well, I'm going to get to that in a second, some of the things that they, that they did. But this might be, spiritual gifts might be the quintessential example of Corinthian confusion. I mean, they really messed up when it came to this subject. And given what we've seen so far, it'd have to be pretty bad if this is the worst thing, don't you think? I would compare it somewhat uh, to, I remember when I was in college, I went to college in Michigan, and I, I grew up and home was in Iowa. So uh, going back and forth for holidays and whatnot, I was all the time driving uh, around the lake and on this road, 8094, and I remember dreading it because it was always under construction and there was always problems. And so it's great that 20 years later that they've gotten over that. So, um, <laughs> But anyway, I remember driving down that road and, and in my little Ford Fiesta, which was my college car. Um, and now you know somewhat why I didn't pick up a wife in college. So um, <laughs> I, I remember driving down 8094 just like in my little, my little Fiesta. And, and then all of a sudden there'd be a big yellow sign and it would say bump. I remember thinking to myself, what have I been hitting for the last 10 miles? And how big must this be if this one they have to announce? Bump. You could put a big yellow sign over chapter 12, major bump ahead. Because in the church at, at, at Corinth, this is an area that they really did not get right starts kind of benignly, though. It just uh, 
starts with spiritual gifts. And so this is a subject that I think that we ought to be excited about. Who doesn't like receiving gifts? I mean, I would, most of us probably have the gift of receiving. We love getting gifts. And so the thought that there are spiritual gifts that God has given to us is kind of an exciting thing. And if you're a Christian here, I would like for you to start getting excited to think about something that God has given to you for an express purpose to accomplish spiritual objectives. And we see this now in the first verse, and let's just read the first verse. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, right away, we have an indication of one of the major problems that the Corinthians had with this subject. And it's kind of, it's uh, a little stealthy here, but in the Greek, it, 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 it literally says, now concerning spiritual things or consider, uh, concerning spiritual people, the reason that this is important is that one of the things that we've kept seeing in this church was that they had chronic pride, spiritual pride where they wanted to find some reason that they could look at themselves up and look at others down. And we've seen this already. For example, we saw in chapter 1 where there were people in the church that they said, we follow Peter. And then there were other people that said, we follow Paul. And then there were other people that said, we follow Apollos. And the people that followed Peter looked down on the people that followed Paul. And the people that followed Paul looked down on the people that followed Apollos. And the people that followed Apollos looked down on the people that followed Peter. And so everybody was thinking that because their guru was better than the other ones, if they associated with him, that meant that they were more spiritual than the other groups within the church. We saw in chapter 8, when it came to the matters of uh, Christian liberty, that there were some people that had liberty in certain areas of lifestyle that other people in the church did not have. And the people that had the liberty looked down on the people that did not have the liberty and said, can't you just get over that? What is your problem? And the people that did not have the liberty looked at the people that did have the liberty and they thought, can't you just repent? What is your problem? You should not have freedom in this area. So these people are looking down on these people. These people are looking down on these people. Everybody's trying to look up to themselves. We saw in chapter 11, when it came to the Lord's Supper, that the wealthy were sort of flaunting their wealth and going ahead and have, taking the Lord's Supper and eating all the food and leaving nothing for the poor and all the rest. So you just see in this church that there is just this major spiritual pride issue. Everybody's looking up at themselves and down at everyone else. And so we get to chapter 12, and we find that this same spiritual haughtiness is finds expression in the context of spiritual gifts. And what was going on was that the Corinthians were enamored with the more spectacular public gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they were look if they had those gifts, they were looking down on the people who were equally gifted by the Holy Spirit but were gifted in more service category. So the people that were had the more public gifts were looking down on the people that had the more service-oriented, more private, behind-the-scenes gifts and saying, look at us, look what we have, don't you wish that you were like me? And so it was creating this divisiveness, again, another category of device, divisiveness within the church. And this is something that is chronic, and it is just as prevalent today. 
right here in this room, no doubt, there are some people that are thinking, you know, this church really needs this. This church really needs to understand the Holy Spirit like I do. Okay? See how subtle that is? Or I I can think of somebody that needs to be here to hear, I'm getting this tape because they need this. And I'm going to take notes and then I'm going to pass it on to them so they get what he's talking about. What? Who here, who here has the Holy Spirit figured out? Who here has arrived? Please identify yourself. We'll worship you. Uh, None of us have. And so this, this spirit is alive and well, no doubt, right here within our own church and right here in this pulpit. None of us get past this. And so we find it from the beginning. Now concerning spiritual people or concerning this whole matter of spirituality, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I want you to begin to see the irony of having pride in a gift. If God has given a gift to someone, where is the pride in having the gift? This is like the uh, saying that you've probably heard. Some people are, are born on third base and think they hit a triple. What do they have that they did not receive? And what do we have that we did not receive? And so where is the boasting in a gift? Begin to process that. That's going to come up again. Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. And we're just kind of walking through the text here. He now says, you know what it's like to live in ignorance. At the end of verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And oh, by the way, of all people, you know what it's like to live according to a lie, to not live by the truth, to live in spiritual ignorance. How, how do we know this? Remember what it was like before Christ? Do you remember what it was like when you were another Corinthian, a pagan there, and you were going to the temple of Aphrodite, and you were, you were uniting yourself with a temple prostitute, and you were thinking by doing that that you were manipulating some god? Do you remember all the other gods and all the chaos of your life? You want to know what it's like to uh, be ignorant about things? You ought to know. You were led astray to mute idols, he calls them here. He's called them already in the book. Uh, he's already said idols are nothing. They're not gods. They might have demonic power behind them, but they're not gods. They're nothing. They're made of wood. They're made of stone. They're not gods. Here he calls them mute. They don't talk. They don't hear. They don't do anything. And yet you followed them. You want to talk about being spiritually ignorant? Remember those days when you were following these mute idols? You don't want to live ignorantly. All right, verse 3. And by the way, verses 1 through 3 are kind of like introductory things, but they have some very important things to say. So hang with me. Look at verse three. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now here at Bethel, we go verse by verse. And so we don't skip the hard ones. And this is kind of a harder one and it's a hard one to interpret. There's all kinds of possibilities. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. Although I, I I am going to tell you what I used to think it means. (laughs) I used to think I've read this many times and I've thought, Oh, what a wonderful test. What a wonderful test of whether a spirit is actually the spirit of God or is maybe demonic. I'll just ask him if I ever have the opportunity. So is Jesus Lord? And if he can say Jesus is Lord, then it's from the God. And in other words, to view it kind of like a little test like that, I don't think that's what it means. 
I don't believe that 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 is what he is saying. There are other passages of Scripture, 1 John 4 in particular, that says to us that we are to test the spirits. But notice the second clause here. Jesus is, what's the word? Say it together. Lord. Jesus Christos Kyrios. The oldest mini statement, the oldest creed in all of Christendom is this one. Jesus is Lord. Kyrios is the Greek word that these Corinthians would have known applied to the emperor of Rome. And it spoke to his supremacy. That there was nobody higher than the emperor of Rome. There was no power greater than the emperor of Rome. And Christianity took that word and said, the emperor is not Lord. Jesus is Kyrios. And Christians down for 2,000 years, that's been like our basic, Jesus is Lord. Our basic truth. So, he says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here's what I think he's saying here. A better explanation is that this is not a test of true and false spirits, but it is a test of true and false Christians. In that context in Corinth, where there were all kinds of gods, the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon of gods, you've probably read about those, studied those some point in the past. They have all these gods. And so for somebody in that pagan culture to say, no, the gods are not Kyrios, the emperor is not Kyrios, Jesus is Kyrios, represented a profound transformation that only the Holy Spirit could accomplish in somebody. So in that way, it is a test of who is a true Christian and who is not a true Christian. It makes me think of, for example, I see Rebecca Seladry here right in the, in the fourth row. It makes me think of India. And Rebecca has such a wonderful testimony, having grown up in India, grown up a Hindu, the daughter, if you don't mind me saying, of the top priest in, in, in India, um, the, that caste of priests. And Abraham Thomas, our friend, will affirm this, that one of the big struggles in evangelism in India is that they already have 300 million gods. And so if you go to a Hindu and say, Jesus is God, will you worship him? They're like, sure, no problem. We'll add him to the list. Now I have 300 million and one gods that I, that I will follow. So it's not hard to get in, in India to have a devout Hindu who is a polytheist to worship another god, Jesus, as God. But wait a second, that is not salvation, is it? Can you just add God to your, or Jesus to your list of gods? No. What is required for a Hindu to become a Christian? They must say, Jesus is the one supreme God. He is Kyrios. Same thing in Corinth. So for a Corinthian to say that was to disavow all the other gods that they had followed up to that point in their life and to say that Christ is the one God and I'm following him. Now we might say, well, isn't that interesting in the ancient culture? Isn't that interesting in the Eastern culture? It is alive and well in the Western culture as well, even in the church. I mean, think of all the people that fill up churches and they... Live their life following the gods of our culture, the God of materialism and the God of power and the God of fame and the God of sex and the God of pleasure and all the other things. But they also want Jesus as a part of it. And so they just kind of add him to the mix and they go to church and they involved in this or that and they sing the songs and off they go. But he's just a part of their pantheon. 
Is that person really a Christian? In that case, I say no. Why? Because only by the Spirit and that transformation will somebody disavow all the other gods of their culture and say, to me, Jesus is curious. He is Lord. And that is the gospel. And let me make that very clear here at this congregation today. The gospel is that there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved. We are not adding Jesus to the culture We are transforming the culture by the one Lord, Christ, who rules and reigns and is coming back, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, died for our sins, raised for our justification, and is now interceding for us as our high priest and offering a salvation to all who will not simply add him to their list, but who will make him supreme Lord in their life. And if you've not done that, either to the believing in him or to the exclusion of all the other things, then I call you to faith in Christ. The real kind that we see here. Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord. All right. See if I have anything else I meant to say here. Oh, yes. We also have another key right here. Regarding the Holy Spirit. And we're kind of, this is this message today, by the way, it's entitled First Steps on Spiritual Gifts. We're just kind of getting into it a little bit. But here's a foundation stone in our understanding of the Holy Spirit that we need to realize uh, right here. How do you know if somebody is, is uh, filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit? How would you know if somebody wasn't, if somebody wasn't? Well, we, hear, we see here that when somebody is controlled by the Holy Spirit, that is expressed in their life and in their words and in their actions with Jesus is Lord. Now, here's why this is important. I had somebody this week, they, just, they used an analogy. They said, um, you know, if, if you squeeze a ketchup bottle, what do you get out? Okay, it's not a trick question. <laughs> You're all like, God. Uh, <laughs> You get ketchup. If you squeeze a ketchup bottle, you get ketchup. If you squeeze a sinner, what comes out? Sin. Kind of a very simple analogy. But I'm going to apply it now to this uh, passage. When you squeeze a Holy Spirit-controlled person, what comes out? Jesus. Okay? Jesus comes out. Not, Not spirit. Not father. Although Spirit and Father are critical. We are a triune believing God. But the Spirit expresses itself in a creedal confession about Christ. Jesus is Lord. Now the reason that this is so important is that the the role of the Holy Spirit in us and in this world is to glorify the Son. God the Holy Spirit seeks to glorify the Son. Jesus said this in John 16, verse 14. Regarding the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is not here seeking to draw attention to Himself. He is here wanting to give attention to the person and the work of Christ. Here's a great example of this. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, if you read Acts 2, this is like the most 
powerful, most pronounced, most clearly Holy Spirit-inspired moment, the tongues of fire that came over and rested on them, and they went rushing out to preach. And what did they preach? Did they preach spirit? No. They preached Christ. Because when somebody is controlled by the Holy Spirit, you squeeze them, what comes out is the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is here to highlight the glory and the beauty of the Son. I heard this illustration some years ago. I think it's a good one. If you've ever been to any major downtown city, doesn't matter where, D.C., New York, let's say Chicago, because we're most familiar with Chicago probably. If you go to downtown Chicago at night, it's cool, isn't it? I think, okay, yes, it is. I, I am the measure of declaring coolness and I declare that cool. (laughs) It's cool because at night you have all of these lights and you see the lights of the city. You see the skyline of the city at night. And especially if you can get, I mean, if you're on, on 94, you kind of see it from a distance, but if you can get into the city, like let's say you're driving down Lakeshore drive at night on the one side, you got the lake. Of course, it's totally black. On the other side though, you have the city and You have these landmarks in the city, which at night are brilliantly displayed, aren't they? So you're driving, let's say you're driving down Lakeshore Drive. Let's say you're coming from the north. You went to the Cubs game. They lost. You're driving south and uh, (laughs) you're coming down Lakeshore Drive. And so you look off to the right and, 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 and you see some of these landmarks. You might see the fountain. You might see the Drake Hotel at the little curve there. And on the left, you see uh, Shedd Aquarium. And, and then you want to get on the shortcut to 90 down to come home. And so you do the little curve at the Museum of Science and Industry. And all of these landmarks look so cool at night because most of them are made of, think of limestone, some kind of bright exterior. And so at night when they're lit up, they just you know, and so they just look so cool. And if you're like me, I drive and I'm looking at those things like, wow, look at the museum of science and industry. It's so massive. It's look at the architecture. It's cool. Right? Okay. How many people drive down Lakeshore drive in Chicago and see these things? They, they, they see the museum of science and industry and they say to themselves, look at the wattage on that lamp right there. The lamps in this city are amazing. Look at the spotlights. Oh, those are the coolest spotlights. Nobody says that, right? Because the spotlight is there to draw attention to something else. To draw attention to the beauty of the building. And if it's doing its job, you don't even notice it. You don't even think about it. Similarly... The Holy Spirit is here not to spotlight himself. He is here to draw attention, to illuminate the glory of Jesus. And so when he is active in a person's life, and when he is active in a congregation, what exudes and what gets the attention is Christ. Only by the Spirit will somebody say, Jesus is Lord. Now, this is so important. There's implications for this, but it is a necessary parameter when it comes to spiritual gifts and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Is it possible 
to become too focused on the spotlight. Yes. Now, I've already said, I said many of us come from ponds of Christianity where we are needing a little bit more wattage, uh, if I can say it that way. But here now is a, a, a also a good measure on the other side. The Spirit magnifies the Son. And when the Spirit is active in a person's life, that person, if you squeeze them, out comes Christology and worship of our Savior. That's what a Spirit-filled person and church looks like. You get that? The role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify the glory and the beauty of the person and the work of Christ. Very important. All right. Now, with that said, let's get into the talk on spiritual gifts. And again, we're just kind of wading in a little bit here today. We're not going to get that far. Verse 4, here's what it says. I'll read verses 4 through 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now here's where we are introduced to this, what is commonly called spiritual gifts. You see this in verse 4. And I want to, uh, first of all, talk with you just about the word itself. The word there for gifts. And we have it on the screen here to help you see it, uh, what it means in the Greek. It, it literally is this. It is charismata. Charis is the word for uh, grace. So it's kind of a cool name for a girl if you're pregnant. We have like 21 waiting to come, waiting to name children right now. So I would argue for that. Or Stephanie is a good name as well. Uh, Charis. Mata is gift. Okay? So if you combine those two, charis, mata, it literally means grace, gift. So this is a good word. Now, in the contemporary use of this word, uh, it is typically applied to a group of or part of Christianity that practices what is known as the sign gifts. Um, And I think that this is unfortunate because it says here that every single Christian has a charismata. So if you are a Christian, you you, you are charismata. You have a grace gift. Grace gift. The word is very fluid. It's used in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 for celibacy. It's also used for marriage. It's just a general word for things that God gives to us, grace gifts that he gives to his people. Now, let's pull out what we can see here about these spiritual gifts. First of all, spiritual gifts come from God. Spiritual gifts come from God. We do not come up with them. Their genesis is not with us. They are from uh, the Lord. And there is a wide variety of them. All from the same spirit. In fact, look at verse 11. We'll skip ahead. All these, there's a list of examples of spiritual gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So they come from God specifically the Holy Spirit, and they are given to us individually. Verse 11, 
Now, I think this is one reason that we ought to be excited about this, not beyond the fact that somebody is giving us a gift, which we all love, but realize who is the person that's giving it to us. I mean, in our own life, don't we oftentimes treasure things by who it is that is giving to us? Think of, think of your most treasured possessions, the best gifts that you've ever received. It might be like grandma's watch, my dad's whatever, my mom's this spouse gave this to me. I'll always remember when they gave this to me. It's not so much the thing itself, but the person who gives it to us that brings so much of the like meaning in our life. I think of in, in, in my, in my life, if, if my house was burning down and you know, you have like 15 seconds to grab whatever you can get and get out of the house. If you ever thought about this, what would you grab? It's kind of a fun, like party starting conversation. Uh, for me, I would, one of the things that I would try to get before I leapt out the window is a letter that my dad wrote to me days before I left for college. And it was a letter that he wrote like fatherly advice, final comments from a proud dad kind of a thing to me. And he got, I remember we got Kentucky fried chicken, went to a picnic table and he read the letter to me. And it was this like real kind of moment, you know, with my dad. And, and even on the, on the letter itself, there are all kinds of tear marks as he was crying, as he wrote it, you know? And so like, for me, that is one of my most treasured gifts that I have ever received in my life. And it has nothing to do with the value of the paper or the envelope, but who gave it to me? You Christian have a gift that the God of heaven apportioned and gave to you individually. It is a gift from God. And because of that, this whole matter of spiritual gifts, if it just was that alone ought to be something that we're all like, not only excited about, but pretty serious about God has given me a gift. Me little old me. Yes, he has a grace gift. You didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. Or it wouldn't be called a grace gift. He just gave it to us. The next thing we see is that there is a wide variety of these spiritual gifts. And that's the word that's repeated in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them. So that word is repeated. And I think that uh, in the text, gifts and service and uh, activity are basically synonyms there. And what he's trying to say here is that there is a wide variety of giftings that God gives to his people. Now, the reason that he says this is that here's one of the things that the church at Corinth had, had seriously messed up. They had become obsessed with one gift. And we see from chapter 14... The thing that the Corinthians were all about and obsessing over was the gift of tongues. That's the thing that they really thought was really, really cool. And the people that had the gift of tongues were looking down on the people that didn't have the gift of tongues. And the people that didn't have the gift of tongues were wishing that God hadn't given it. Why did I have to get the gift of service? I wish I could be up there doing that. And, and, and God's here, Paul's here saying, listen, they all come from God. And therefore, they are all valuable. And there's a variety of giftings and mixtures of giftings. And all of them are to be treasured. And none is to be elevated higher than another. Because God is the one who has given them to us. 
So don't get hung up on one gift. Enjoy the breadth of them. Here's the next thing, verse 6, that God is the one who energizes the effectiveness. Look at what it says. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The word that you see there for empowers, it literally in the Greek, it, it almost is exactly energizes. It's one of those words that is what in the English, what it is in the Greek as well. God gives the gift, but he is also the one that animates the effectiveness of the gift. He is the energy behind whatever fruit that gift is, uh, is bearing. Maybe, maybe here's an illustration, like uh, a gift that you would give to a child. Christmas, where it's one of these gifts that, you know, is beep, beep, beep. You know, it's got a, it requires a battery. Okay. (laughs) Boy, did I go the wrong way on that, getting that around to that one. Um, But you know what I'm talking about. In fact, I was just moving one of our pastors uh, recently, and he had a whole box of of, uh, toys. And I grabbed the box, and as I grabbed the box, you hear, all these things. And I, you know, because all these toys are all... You know, they're left on and they're all, forget that. So anyway, <laughs> if you give a, a gift like that to a child, you can say, here you go, here's your, here's your whatever it is. And he could go, oh, it doesn't do anything, does it? It needs batteries. So the parent gives the gift and then has to give the batteries as well for that gift to do what it's supposed to do. The same thing is what God does. He gives the gift and he also energizes it. He is the one that empowers it. We don't do that. So that even right now, I think the congregation is affirmed. I think my gift is what I'm doing right now. But you know what? I can be up here just waving my arms and I can illustrate and I can do all these things and it won't do one thing in the congregation. I can't do anything. Nothing I'm saying here will affect any change working to any heart. Nothing. I can't do that. God has to do that. By his Holy Spirit, and I hope that he is right now, in the hearts of every person in this room, animating it, making it alive, making it effective. And that's true of every gift. We get the gift from God. He energizes the gift. We have the joy of exercising the gift. But he gets the glory for it. He causes the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the increase. In fact, we can say this. If somebody has a gift and they are drawing attention to themselves with the gift or drawing attention to the gift itself, the fruit that is born of that kind of ministry may be spectacular, but it is not God-bearing fruit. Because the way that God bears fruit with his gifts is that he uses us in the giving of the gift, animates the gift, uses the gift in a way that only he can get the glory. He has said, I will share my glory with no other, right? So we'll get to how we, our role in that, but that's a coming message. All right, here's the last two things I want us to see here today. And I'm only going to mention them briefly. Uh, look, look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given. So here's the first thing that we see. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. 
Now, that's an exciting thing. None of you, if you're a Christian here, can be, can be thinking to yourself, well, maybe I missed, I, I, I missed out somehow. Maybe God forgot about me. No, you have at least one thing, one role within the body life of the congregation that you are uniquely good at. I think that's exciting. And we're going to talk about how to discover that and, and how to get that going. But every Christian has at least one gift. And that gifting is a manifestation of the Spirit. So that some people want to say, is it a Spirit-filled church? How would you know if a church was a Spirit-filled church? We sing song, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. How do we know if he ever showed up here? One way that we know that he has shown up is when member A over here, with a fresh heart for God and a desire to serve him, gets off of their fanny and begins to exercise their gift in a passion area of their life, that is the Holy Spirit. Similarly, I will pick on this side of the room because I think you were the grits in a, in, a, in a sermon some weeks ago. You were the drug addicts and all that. So we'll go back to this side over here. <laughs> Similarly, if member B over here with a fresh heart for God and thinking, oh, I want to serve him is motivated to exercise a gift and gives their time and gives their energy and their resources and whatever it might be to serve God in some particular way. And they may fall flat on their face when they start, but they're doing something. And in that process, they discover something else that kind of is an area that they see fruit being born. That member B from over here doing that, it is the Holy Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the revealing of the Spirit. How do you know when the Holy Spirit shows up at a church? People get serious about using their gifts. That is the Holy Spirit. We cannot be Corinthian in our perspective on this and think, well, it's the Holy Spirit when somebody up front does something really spectacular. It is just as much and maybe more the Holy Spirit when somebody humbly serves God and exercises a gift of service. Like we had Chad up here sharing the the benevolence story. We're all like, oh, that's so great. But you know what? The people that were involved in that, you know what it felt like when the Holy Spirit was working through them? It felt like this. Um, Could you fill out some paperwork? Hi, is this the hospital? We were kind of wondering if you would just be nice to us. Were these people, as they were doing it, going, you know, just like in this ecstasy or something? No. They were just serving. And that serving is the Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit's gifts manifest His presence. So if you are a Christian here today, here's what I want you to realize. You've been given a gift. You have a gift from the Holy Spirit. You have a purpose. You have something to do here that God in his wisdom decided that you are the only one so exactly apportioned that particular grace gifting. Nobody else here can do it like you can do it. And apparently God thought that this congregation needed you to have that gift or he would not have wasted his time to give you it. You have a gift. I want you to think about that. What are you doing with it? What is it? How's that expressing itself? You have something to do. 
I made this comment last night. You know, when I went to the reenactment, did I tell you about that already? <laughs> when, I went, when I went to the reenactment, they, uh, they gave me a gun. I was not confused at all as to what I was supposed to do with it. I didn't say, oh, it's a, I'm going to go decorate the mess hall. with it. It'll look so nice on the wall. Guns are not for decorating. They are for shooting. And I shot it. <laughs> Maybe that helps in some way. God's gifting is God's call on your life. You can know what he wants you to do by what he has gifted you to do. Finally, this spiritual gifts are others oriented and for the blessing of the whole church. And that's what that's the last part uh, teach is given the common given the spirit for the common good. Gifts are not for ourselves. They are not to be self aggrandizing. They are not to be uh, self. I guess they're self fulfilling, but they're not oriented around self. To have a gift is to say, how can I serve others? How can I bless the congregation? How can I bless the body of Christ? How can I use this gift for others? By definition, it is that way. So just very quickly, what is a spiritual gift? Let me give you the best definition I've seen. Wayne Grudem says this, a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. Any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. And I'm going to unpack that in a later message. But this is the thing, as we kick off this whole thing on spiritual gifts, you have an empowerment, you have an enablement, Christian, that God himself has given to you for the common good. So have you thought about it? Is it exciting for you to think about it? Or are you kind of like, oh, I don't know. I've never seen any kids not excited on Christmas morning. Gifts get us excited, and God wants us to be excited about it. Some of you are like, oh, little old me. Yes, you. God can use me. He wants to use you. I'm not good at anything. God promises that you are really good at at least one thing. I'm pretty sure it's not an important thing. There are no unimportant gifts from God. Can't someone else do it? Not like you can. How can I find out more? By coming next week. <laughs> you see, I have the gift of marketing. It's in the Greek. Trust me, you'll see. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go over the list, and you can read through that. You might uncover your gift even as you study that a little bit. But here's what I can tell you. We need every spiritual gift that God has given to this church. Not just to be, just to have it. We need it animated. We need it energized. We need it at work. Which means that every Christian in this room has both the opportunity and the obligation to use the gift that God has given to you. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing as a result of going through this that our church, for, for the first time, seriously thinks about that and gets all fired up. Think of the giftings and all the fruit that could come from that. I think it could be great. 
More on that next week. Let's stand together for prayer.